Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatric cancer doctor teams up with the parent of a pediatric cancer survivor to talk about the phase of cancer care known as survivorship. The center's name is the Survivor Wellness Center, and that's really our goal is to figure out how people can be the healthiest version of themselves they can be, no matter what happened to them to treat their cancer. And the Upstate New York Poison Center provides an overview on the risks of vaping. The CDC has confirmed six deaths related to vaping. They are otherwise healthy. They are not known to have any other clear risk factors or reasons to develop this lung injury. Uh, they've ruled out things like viruses, like infections, and really the only commonality that's left between these patients is that they were all using vaping products. All that, plus the healing muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn what's most important to know about vaping and a mysterious lung disease that has killed people who use electronic cigarettes. But first, we'll explore the concept of cancer survivorship with a pediatric cancer doctor and the parent of a pediatric cancer survivor. When a child has cancer, the parents and whole family focus their time and energy on getting that child through whatever treatment is called for, be it surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, or a combination of those. This usually means many appointments at the hospital, cancer center, and doctor's offices, medications to manage, schedules to adjust, and thinking no further ahead than the next medical test or appointment. But if the treatment is successful, the child and parents enter a new phase called cancer survivorship, which lasts a lifetime. Here to talk about it are Dr. Jody Seema, a pediatric oncologist who directs the Cancer Survivorship Program at Upstate, and Jim Howe, the parent of a child who had cancer, who was treated successfully and is now in survivorship. And Jim is also a staff member of HealthLink on Air. They're going to talk about what survivorship means for both the doctor and the parent of a child with cancer, and they know each other pretty well, so they're going to go by first names. Yeah. Uh, Jody, why don't we start by you explaining what you mean by cancer survivorship and how you approach it as a physician. And I'm going to tell our audience, here we're talking about childhood cancer. So we're talking about uh, children who have cancer and have been treated with it, uh, treated for it. And we're also going to talk about adults who were treated as children, which uh, is separate from cancers that people get as an adult. So, so it's an interesting question, and it shouldn't be that complicated, but there are about a million different definitions out there of what a cancer survivor is. I think one of the most important ones and kind of what I use is a cancer, you're a cancer survivor from the moment you're diagnosed. Whether you survive a month, a year, or 40 years, you are a cancer survivor. How we approach that from the perspective of care, you know, what does, what does our center do? What are our goals? How do we want to help survivors? Sometimes when people are treated for cancer, they have things that are given to them, chemotherapies, radiation, surgeries that are done to their bodies that have long lasting effects. Our goal is to acknowledge we have all these things that happened to recognize that bad things can sometimes happen down the line, 10, 20, 30 years from those things. How do we find the bad things, treat them quickly, and let people have the best life possible? So the center's name is the Survivor Wellness Center, and that's really our goal is to figure out how people can be the healthiest version of themselves they can be, no matter what happened to them to treat their cancer, but still respect that and sort of take that responsibility for their health and move forward in a positive way. Jim, why don't you give some background on, you're a parent of a child who had cancer. What type of cancer? Sure. Um, my daughter, Kate, who has given permission for me to speak about her, but uh, was not able to be here today, she had cancer as a child. She had a type of cancer called a neuroblastoma um, that originated in her nervous system, her spine specifically, uh, and had to be treated um, 
in, in an emergency surgery, and she eventually had to get chemotherapy and has fully recovered. She's now in her late 20s. Um, but I wanted to go back a little bit to what uh, you, Amber, were saying at the beginning, that we tend to think of cancer as when the, when the patient is sick. We tend to think of dealing with getting, those appoint, getting to those appointments on time. We tend to think of chemotherapy or radiation or um, surgery and how the whole household becomes focused on getting through the treatment, somehow dealing with things like uh, insurance claims, trips to the doctor, dealing um, with uh, how, to, how to keep a household running while you're dealing with the cancer. Um, and that's, that's the focus of many stories on TV shows, movies, etc. So I want to say that after that, this is what we're thinking about now. This is survivorship is what comes after that. As you start to slow down, as you start to try and readjust to a more normal life, um, I'm obviously speaking as the parent of a child who was too young to be conscious of that at the time. She was an infant, a baby, she, right? She was an infant, and she was successfully treated as a toddler. So her earliest memories do not include her treatment of cancer. She only remembers afterward. Um, so uh, maybe, Jody, you can pick up from there about... Um, How, what that looks like. Mm -hmm. It, depending on when a kid, you know, like Kate was little, right? So how she approaches survivorship is very different than some other kids would. So depending on how old you are really depends on how you have processed the cancer experience and how you're going to process survivorship. So it's very interesting to watch because I can have three patients all these kids and some of them are now adolescents and some of them are now young adults. So you can have three people. Um, all at different stages of their lives with similar cancer treatments, maybe similar times that they were treated in their in their lifespan for cancer, but very different survivorship conversations um, and very different survivorship responsibilities. My survivors who come in and they're 10, we just start to talk about ownership of medical information a little bit. When they're 15, that's a very different conversation, and we really start talking about how survivorship means how they care for themselves for the rest of their lives. My 20-year-olds sometimes force their parents to the waiting room, <laughs> and that's a fun transition to watch. And But in some of my 30-year-olds, maybe that's when the parents stop coming with them. But there are some that are still in the waiting room, and, and so you get these survivors with all different experiences of survivorship all different uh, complications or sort of things that are their, their own pieces of survivorship, their own medical pieces, their own psychosocial pieces that, that they own, and they all tackle it a little differently depending on where they are in the spectrum. And that changes over time. And Jim, you saw that over time. You know, what was that like as a parent watching baby to now Kate, who texted me good luck this morning with this talk, you know, a wonderful young woman. Yeah, well, the, um, as I mentioned, uh, for, for a parent, I, I think also for the child, depending on how well they're doing after their treatment is over, the idea of the cancer begins to recede into the background. They, they get back into a normal way of life around the house. The kid goes on with school, maybe with sports, with activities. It's just, it's something that's bubbling in the back of your mind as a as a child and as a parent, you're thinking, well, I was told this medication might affect their hearing later in life. This might be a problem when the child enters puberty. Um, maybe there'll be problems with something else that could come later in life. It's in the back of your mind and you're always waiting to see how did this latest test come out? Did it show that everything is okay? And in survivorship, that test tends to be annual. It tends to be an annual visit that's a happy visit. Um, it's a, uh, it doesn't involve uh, usually anything more than a blood test and a physical. So it's, it's a lot easier to handle than chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery. Um, as a matter of fact, the visits themselves can, be, can become quite an event. I know when my daughter was little, um, my wife used to schedule a day off near, the, near Christmas vacation where they would uh, make it a point to take off from school and work, come into the hospital for the visit, go out to lunch together, go shopping together, 
and it became a happy way for them to deal with survivorship, to think about survivorship. And of course, the, the nurses and doctors who all had seen her when she was sick were also happy to see her as someone who had recovered. Um, not every child uh, has the experience she did. Some children will need, during their survivorship, uh, further treatment. Maybe you could talk about that a little yeah. bit. Let, let me remind listeners first that this is Upstate uh, Medical University's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and today's discussion on the subject of childhood cancer survivorship is with pediatric oncologist Jody Seema and Jim Howe, the father of one of her patients and also my colleague at HealthLink on Air. So the question is really an interesting one. And what you can see, you know, your personal experience, this lovely young girl who's really doing great. Um, and I would put her in a, yeah. So you can, you can risk group cancer survivors just like you can cancers. And it's very different. It doesn't mean that this is your risk of your cancer coming back. I think of it as the risk of problems coming up down the road. You know, Kate's a low, low to middle, and the thing that bumps her up to middle is anytime we treat infants, um, I watch them closely, <laughs> no matter what. But she's been doing beautifully, but you're very right, and that isn't everyone's experience. And there are some of my high-risk survivors who got complex multimodal therapy, which means intense chemotherapy, intense radiation. Some of our Hodgkin survivors um, are sort of, I think, the, the key group for this. And some of those people start mammograms at the age of 25 looking, screening for breast cancer. When you, when you think about breast cancer screening in the population, depending on whose guidelines you read, just for the general population, it's maybe 40 years old. What we're doing there is we're screening and saying, at 40 years old, there's about a 2% risk of someone having breast cancer in the next 10 years. So, hey, let's start screening. Some of my survivors hit that number at much younger ages, and there's a lot of different things that go into that. The same is true for things like colorectal cancer, for lung cancer, um, for cardiac, you know, heart disease, lung problems. So we do have a lot of stuff that we need to focus on and pay attention to that if we catch problems early, if we pay attention to how we're exercising and taking care of our bodies, that we try to mitigate and make all those things better. But I think the underlying thing that I hear from you is very important to me is that celebration. And, and I try every patient who comes in to say, you are a this many year survivor and how awesome is that? Because no matter what obstacles we have in our way, we're facing them, you're here, and, and there really is a happiness to that. Even when my survivors are facing things like a second cancer or kind of you know big bad things in their life, that is a good thing. And so, so I'm, I'm actually glad to hear that part that brings me a lot of joy in my work, which is this celebration of, yes, you're a survivor. You know, there's high fives around the room. And it's nice to know that that comes across. You know, that's really, I think, a good thing. And I think you've touched on something else that maybe we need to uh, explain a little more, which is that, for example, my daughter and, and other patients of yours who grow up will be coming to see you technically a pediatrician, as an adult. So you might get somebody who's 25, 35, 50 years old mm -hmm. coming to talk to someone who's technically a pediatrician yeah. because they had cancer as a child. So maybe you could talk about how that transition occurs and how you as a pediatrician happen to be dealing with yeah. it. It's, a, it's really interesting. I'll tell you, um, this came up. I was out of work unexpectedly for a period of time, and I had all these survivors on my schedule, and you are talking about 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds. And my partners were like, what? <laughs> we we got to see what? You know, because that's not in our everyday realm of what we're doing. And I'll tell you, I've been doing it so long now, it is second nature to me to look at an afternoon where I have three 30-year-olds on my schedule and to say, hey, that's normal. There really is... A very different perspective and I've had to do a lot of different training to really um, understand and recognize some problems and processes that don't happen the same in kids as they do adults. That being said, I'm also really good at recognizing the things I'm not an expert at and part of what I try to do for my survivors as they get older and they sort of push the parents to the side is make them identify who's your primary care? Do you have one? And I really try to support that relationship because that primary care knows much more about managing their high blood pressure than I do. Now I know I gave them chemo when they were young 
that can damage their heart. So I know I want that heart paid, you know, I want to pay very close attention to that hypertension. I want it well managed. Um, I know that sometimes my, my kids, when they're young, in their 20s, if they have high cholesterol, sometimes the PCPs might say, oh, you're young, we're not going to start treating you that that's where that balance of my expertise saying, no, treat them. They need to be treated in their 20s. They have multiple risk factors. This high cholesterol is a result of their chemo. It's not going away from, you know, from sort of normal things. So there's this play back and forth between the areas where I have expertise in recognizing these problems in adults, but I also recognize, hey, these primary care docs, they are the experts. On, they do this all the time. And so we really try to have my older patients own their own responsibility um, and own you know, their relationship with their PCP. Part of our records and part of the cancer treatment summaries, every note I write on these patients has their entire cancer treatment summary on there. And it gives the whole list of things that I might be worried about or things we need to look for. And they tend to give directions. Like for example, my young women who are get, who need a mammogram, it'll say on there, mammogram screening starting at 25. Um, let's say they're 30 now. It'll say mammogram screening yearly ordered by PCP. You know, And so we really try to make sure we have clear documentation. So at any point, if one of my survivors walks into an emergency room, someone can pull up my note. Someone can call us for information. And here's all the pertinent information, and here's why we care about it because that piece of information is really particular. Interesting. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. We'll be right back with more about childhood cancer survivorship. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and today's discussion on the subject of childhood cancer survivorship is with pediatric oncologist Dr. Jody Seema and Jim Howe, the father of one of her patients and also my colleague at HealthLink on Air. And Dr. Seema, I wanted to ask which um, childhood cancers have the most likelihood of coming back later in life? So in terms of the actual cancer itself relapsing, at a certain point in time, that risk goes down. Every cancer is a little different. There are some cancers like a germ cell tumor. Uh, I think of it as they burn fast. You know, if you're past two years out from diagnosis with a germ cell, you're really okay. There are some cancers like Ewing's and ALL that can be a little more creepy and that their relapse curve stretches out a little bit um, into that second five years, or the, those, you know, zero to five years is what we typically think of um, as sort of your cancer-free. Um, and five to 10, uh, there's a couple, like I said, ALL, Ewing's can sort of creep into that second five years. But every cancer is a little bit different. Um, even among kids with leukemia, there are different types of leukemia that have risks of coming back at different times. By the time most of the, the kids transition to survivorship, um, they really, their risk of relapse is minimal. And, you know, I think something that Jim talked about is that mindset transition where you're go, 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 you're at chemo appointments, you're, you are acutely worried about your child's life on a day-to-day -day basis, normal life filters in and you're worried about, did I forget to put snack in there so they're not starving between school and soccer practice and somewhere in there is where survivorship blooms and survivorship grows and you really start to say what's what's the best version of my life right now what's the most healthy person I can be and you forget that a little bit that that cancer was there yeah I, I want to echo that and say that survivorship is a much nicer state of being than than actively fighting the cancer it's it allows you to have a to, to step back and to have a, a nice life, you hope. Um, but I want to do also make the point, um, Jody, you've been talking about coming back for survivorship physicals, for example. You keep track of how your patients are doing as they grow older. Um, so that information not only helps the patient um, as he or she deals with uh, the aftermath of cancer, but it also can help other patients, maybe uh, scientists who are researching drugs how, how is that information yeah. used? I, I think that is very important because that's an underlying part of what Upstate is, right? I, I think 
We provide care, but there's something bigger and different when you're at an academic institution that your job is not only to take care of the patient, your job is to grow the science and your job is to take care of this patient and the hundred behind them and the hundred behind them. So that is a really important job that we focus on in survivorship in a lot of different ways. We have a very, uh, I have an excellent team, love my team. We have um, our therapists, our clinical social workers with us, Stephanie Berry, Robin Monteleone is our nurse coordinator and we screen our patients and we talk a lot about what their psychosocial effects are, how this is affecting their life, and we gather data on that. Uh, we gather data and we have databases that Robin manages that look at what treatment exposures people had, what kinds of problems are they having. We participate in national conferences and I always tell the patients, I always laugh with my survivors because I'll always come back with new great information when I hang out with what I call my survivor geeks, right? We all have our thing in life that's ours that we're so excited about that maybe not everyone understands. And you know, whether it's Comic-Con or for me, it's going to a survivor conference, uh, I enjoy that time to be with other people across the country who are really looking at this because part of survivorship is tricky. I have drug A that I've now been using for 10 years and it's a wonderful drug and it's new and it's helpful. I do not know what that's going to do when I give it to a five-year-old in 20 years. And the only way to know is to watch them, to pay attention, to look for patterns, and to connect with other people across the country to make sure we're really furthering the science and figuring out what the next best thing is. Um, but but we, do, we do laugh because when I come back from what I call my, my survivor dork or my survivor geek conferences, I tell the patients, this is what I've learned and this is where we are and this is the science. And I think that also helps our patients engage in a bigger way with their cancer survivorship and sort of connects them um, to this idea that I had this thing and it, it's still growing and it's still a big part of, of me, but in a different, better way. Do you, as a, as a cancer survivor, do you always have to be vigilant about um, any little thing that happens with your body? Do you always have to have like in the back of your mind this almost a fear that, oh my God, it could be cancer coming back, right? So a little bit of that is yes, and a little bit of that is no. Um, some of my patients who are Hodgkin's disease survivors and they have gotten you know, chemo and radiation, um, little things like heartburn, we talk about heartburn is heartburn and many people have it, but you need to think about persistent or odd heartburn being esophageal cancer because you are radiated to that area. So there's an interesting balance there. I think the most important part is that survivor has to own who they are and their medical information so that they know, no matter what setting they are, I don't care if they go across the country, wherever they are, they are the expert on their body. They know what those stumbling blocks are down the line. So they know what to not so worry about and what to worry about. And that's also goes back to that idea of PCP engagement. They're with their primaries and nope, go to your primary. And sometimes we'll get a call. Like we'll get a, one of my beloved patients, she's, she's lovely uh, woman in her thirties now doing great. And you know, she had something going on. She was worried about, so she called her primary and they were getting them in. And then she called us and she knew she didn't need to call us, but it made her feel better. But she also knew I got to go to my primary. This is what I do. This is how I manage it. And I know I shouldn't be worried about this. And, and so some of that is normal anxiety and fears and stuff. And, but as long as you have that education and, and, you're, and, that, and that empowerment to own your medical information and own your health in your life, and that's an important part of what we do. How, do um, primary care providers, by and large, are they knowledgeable enough about cancer and the after effects to kind of do that? So that is fascinating. Um, and I'll tell you, I spent when I was younger and didn't have so many children of my own, I spent a lot of time like researching that. And it was an area I was very interested in. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of great studies out there that say by and large, primary care docs want to care for their survivors. But over and over again, in different ways of assessing them, they say, I'm not really comfortable. I don't know what to do. I don't have this knowledge. And I can tell you in my own office with my partners, they know some stuff about survivorship, but they don't know it to the extent that I do. So I always think of my role is to sort of be the expert in the corner who doesn't have to run the show, but gosh, I'm right here to help you. And, and that's part of how we view our communication is, 
I want to put all the tools in that PCP's hand easily every single time they get a note from me. I don't want them to get a cancer treatment summary once when the kid goes off treatment, bury it in a chart or scan it somewhere in an electronic medical record where it's a hundred clicks back. Every time, you know, my note should say to them, hey, remember, here's where their cancer was. Hey, here's what we did. Hey, here's what I'm worried about, even if it's all going well. Um, and that's the goal is to make those primary care docs job easier. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, and today's discussion on the subject of childhood cancer survivorship is with pediatric oncologist uh, Dr. Jody Seema and Jim Howe, the father of one of her patients, and also my colleague at HealthLink on Air. Now, we've talked about survivorship and and how you're monitoring wellness um, during visits. How much attention do you give to side effects that might be caused by cancer treatments years later? That's a lot of how we sort of structure the appointments. Just to give you an idea, so our patient comes in for an appointment. They're put in a room by um, Christopher is our nurse. He's lovely. And Christopher checks in with them. Hey, how you doing? Gets labs if we need it. Um, our clinical social worker goes in next and does a complete psychosocial screening with them. And maybe it's someone she's seen once before, twice before, but she'll address how school Um, How's your brain function? How's your mood? How's anxiety? And sometimes those anxieties are normal life stuff. Sometimes they're cancer related. Then I go in the room and and Robin comes with me and we go over system, not really system by system, sort of problem by problem, what we're worried about. So if I know, for instance, that my survivor that I'm seeing today got medicine that affected their heart, I'll start with, hey, what are you doing for activity? What are you doing for exercise? How are we doing with that? You know, when was your last echo? We'll talk about that. When do you need one? When do we look again? If it's a young woman who is, you know, just kind of hitting, you know, a young adulthood, I might remind them, hey, you only see me once a year. If you get pregnant in the next year, whether planned or unplanned, you need an echo of your heart while you're pregnant to make sure that your heart's okay. So the echo is a scan of the heart. Yeah, ultrasound of the heart. Yeah, just looks at looks at function basically. Cardiologist just somewhere are like seizing because I described it that way, but it's pretty straightforward. (laughs) So, you know, we go through kind of system by system or or problem by problem what we need to look at for that particular patient. And that's where we might address fertility. You know, your risk of infertility is, let's say, low. And that's important for people to hear, even if the risk is low, because if I'm a survivor who's now 22 and you told me that when I was 15, I may not remember Mm -hmm. Well, gosh, it's important for me to hear now I'm okay to have kids and my kids are going to be fine. And so we'll kind of go through that problem based and it's very specific based on what each person's exposures were. Now, um, Jim's daughter, Kate, was treated here at Upstate in in, in Syracuse um, and is in the survivorship program here. But what about someone who moves to Syracuse from somewhere else? They had cancer as a child elsewhere and now they're new to this community do they come to the survivorship absolutely. program here? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, does... Absolutely. So they usually what will happen is we'll either get a phone call from a parent as they're moving because parents who are, when you're a parent of a kid with cancer, you are very vigilant about their medical care. So when they're younger, uh, the parents will often call and say, hey, we're moving to the area. Uh, can we be seen? We get them in for an appointment. Sometimes they'll come to the area, be seen, and the primary care will, will pick up, hey, they're a cancer survivor, and send them in. So we bring them in and we do what we call an initial visit. All of our patients, even patients treated by us, when they kind of enter the survivorship program, we do an evaluation that's a complete head-to-toe evaluation. We look at every single little thing. We make sure every detail of their treatment plan is crystal clear, whether that means trekking to get paper copies of medical records, whatever we need to do. That process can be long, exhausting, but completely worth it when you have accurate information to go forward on. Um, so th- so those they will come into us. Uh, we've had patients who were treated sort of 18, 19 years old and they're in an outlying area, so we'll also do consults where someone just comes in, we see them, we look at their treatment history, and we send them back because they don't want to make a two-hour drive every, you know, however, once a year or every two years. So we really are pretty flexible in terms of what does the patient need and what's the best way to help them and get that information. I'm also a big fan of avoiding unnecessary medical visits. I do not like dragging people in if I don't really think I have something to add to their care 
uh, to give them further information. So some of my survivors who are low risk and doing great, here's your summary. You know what to worry about. You call me if you need me. We're here as a resource. Jody, are you also receiving reports back from those primary care providers or PCPs that say, I got your information, Um, I looked at uh, his or her um, uh, physical again, and I think this or that. So it's it's a back and forth. It's not just Mm -hmm. you giving a report to their primary care doctors. Absolutely. So there, we get a lot of information, and we'll, sometimes someone will have a scan for something kind of unrelated, or someone has a problem going on. They just want us to look at it. So we get there's a lot of communication coming in. Um, thankfully, I have Robin who handles all that and, and puts it in front of my nose and says, "Hey, this is okay. I'm going to call them," and and really is a she, a key piece to that communication where it's very difficult to for any physicians to find extra time during the day that doesn't exist to be able to communicate, but the communication is so critical. So when you have members of your team that pick that up and say, hey, here's what you need to look at. This is what's going on. I can look at things. We can make sure that everything is in line and, and kind of just, just how it should be. Give our expertise and get that feedback back to PCPs in real time, not, you know, a week or two later. That's not helpful to but people. But the information is so, flowing both ways. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, good yep, it's great. Okay. Well, I want to make it a point um, to say that we will link to the Survivor Wellness Center website on the healthlinkonair.org website where this podcast will be posted. And I want to thank both of you for this conversation. I think it's been very beneficial. Thank you. Thanks. My guests have been Jim Howe, the father of a childhood cancer survivor, and also my colleague, along with pediatric oncologist Dr. Jody Seema, who directs Upstate's Cancer Survivorship Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what you need to know about vaping. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A growing amount of evidence is suggesting that vaping products are associated with a severe and in some cases deadly lung disease. Several hundred patients from a few dozen states have been reported to have possible cases of pulmonary illnesses related to electronic cigarettes, and the experts at the Upstate New York Poison Center have been fielding lots of questions regarding vaping lately. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is toxicologist and doctor of pharmacy Willie Eggleston from the Upstate New York Poison Center. Thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Now, I read that a patient in Oregon died after vaping. This was a person that was described as having suddenly appeared without any other underlying health conditions and became ill enough to die from the syndrome. So, I mean, what is going on with this? What do we know about? Yeah, and he's not the only one as of... uh the most recent reporting, the CDC has confirmed six deaths related to vaping. And his story really kind of fits the story of these other patients who are presenting uh, with this lung illness. They are otherwise healthy. They are not known to have any other clear risk factors or reasons to develop this lung injury. Uh, They've ruled out things like viruses, like infections. And really the only commonality that's left between these patients is that they were all using vaping products. Were they smokers before that, or is is vaping just a new thing for them, or is it a mix? So we don't have a lot of details yet from the CDC as far as the demographics on these cases. So all we know is that the commonality is vaping. They have indicated that there's not one clear product. So when you look at the type of product that these individuals are using, they're not all using the same product. Uh, They have a variety of different components in them. Uh, But the one interesting commonality is that it does seem that most of these cases are using vaping products containing THC or the active component in marijuana uh, rather than just nicotine, Uh, although that is still preliminary evidence at this point. 
And are the age range of the patients? Are we seeing young and old? Or? So we're seeing mostly uh, patients in their teens and 20s, uh, but certainly the disease is not necessarily discriminating among that population. That's just the population where vaping is the most common uh, based on the statistics that we have. We'll likely know a lot more about these cases as the CDC continues to report its data. Uh, they have already decreased their number of cases. They're down to, uh, they indicate 380 probable cases uh, that they're still working on confirming, uh, but they have put out guidance to the public and to public health officials to say, here's what to look for when you suspect you have a case of vaping-related lung injury. Uh, so they've actually laid out guidance to help health professionals rule out other potential causes and to provide them with resources to properly identify these cases. So what are the symptoms? So the symptoms that patients are describing are really this sudden onset of difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, uh, and that is due to this acute process that's taking place in their lungs. We don't fully understand what the injury is, uh, but what appears to be happening is there is damage to the lung tissue, and that damage to the lung tissue is preventing normal air exchange in the lungs. So generally when we breathe in, we like the oxygen that we breathe in to go into our blood and the carbon dioxide that's in our blood to come out so we can exhale that. And in these patients, uh, their lungs are not working in the way that they should and they're not able to exchange that air. Uh, whether or not this will have long-term implications for these patients, like long-term airway disease, we still don't know because it's such a new uh, phenomenon. So this um, difficulty breathing or shortness of breath does it, is it happening when they're vaping, all of a sudden they suddenly have trouble breathing, or is it later that night or the next day? So we don't have enough details to really say when exactly it occurs with vaping, like you're using the product and all of a sudden it happens. Based on the limited information that we have, it doesn't seem to be something that happens necessarily while you're vaping. It's, it's a injury that occurs due to the vaping process. And so you don't necessarily have to be using a vaping product in that moment to develop the shortness of breath. You could develop it hours or days later uh, and end up in the ICU. So um, shortness of breath really anytime needs to sort of be explained or figured out what's oh, causing Oh, absolutely. It. Regardless so. of, of what's causing shortness of breath, if you're ever short of breath, and you're having difficulty with breathing, that's a that's an emergency. That's a let's call 911 and get you to an emergency department and get you taken care of. So what happens to these sorts of patients when they get to the emergency department? Sure. What do they do for the assessment? So once patients arrive in the emergency department, there is an extensive workup to rule out other common causes. Because one of the problems that happens when we have these public health crises is that we sometimes forget to think about all the other reasons why someone can have this difficulty breathing and uh, kind of decide it must be vaping, right? And there are certainly cases where it will be, but we still encourage healthcare uh, professionals to do their normal workup they would do for these patients, rule out viruses, rule out infections, get imaging to see what does the damage actually look like, and once we've ruled out things like infection, like allergic causes, and there is no other clear indication, uh, then the answer, if it is someone who is using a vaping product, might be vaping. And so that's uh, a question that I think is important to ask when you have an otherwise healthy teenager, healthy person in their 20s coming in with shortness of breath, while you're doing that workup, I think asking them, hey, do you use a vaping product? And if so, um, can we get our hands on it because the Department of Health, at least in New York State right now, is very interested in testing these products and seeing exactly what's in them to try and help the investigation and figure out if we can find a commonality. Do the Does the damage in the lungs show up like on a, an x-ray or a CT scan? So it will show up on a CT scan. Uh, so there is a consistent, it's described uh, at least in the media as what's called ground glass opacities is the kind of funky medical term for it. Uh, so if you think about like what glass would look like if you grind it up into tiny pieces, that's kind of what parts of the lung look like on CT scan uh, with uh, this vaping injury. Now, is that something that just happens with vaping? No, absolutely not. But it is one commonality that they are noting between the cases. Okay. Um, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Willie Eggleston from the Upstate New York Poison Center. He's a toxicologist and doctor of pharmacy, and he's also a clinical assistant professor in the School of Pharmacy at Binghamton University. Um, how do public health officials go about 
trying to solve this? Because you mentioned the CDC, and I know they've activated an emergency operations center in response to this. So what is that and how does it work? So responding to these really is a team effort, and it takes a lot of different pieces working at once. So part of responding to these is creating a clear definition that will allow people to identify potential cases. Uh, because one of the biggest difficulties, like I said, is, is to really hone in on, I have this case of a patient who is short of breath, who might have this lung injury, how do I decide if it's from vaping or not? So the CDC has provided uh, on their website clear information to healthcare professionals exactly what steps they need to take to rule out other potential causes and to get to the conclusion that, yeah, we do think that this is a vaping-associated lung injury. So that definition has been provided. It's certainly a working definition. As more information comes in, it may get updated. The other pieces of this, too, are figuring out what exactly is going on, right? So in addition to identifying cases, we would also like to figure out why these cases are happening in the first place. Uh, so public health officials are working closely with state departments of health to make sure that they, if they are able to, are obtaining product in these cases and testing that product and looking for contaminants, commonalities, uh, to try and see is this uh something that can be tied to one or two substances, or is this just something that is going to remain an unknown? And then the last part is resources. So you have patients showing up who are very sick and who need healthcare and treatment. And so making sure that hospitals are prepared with the resources that they need to provide care to these patients uh, is really important. And that's all from the healthcare facing side. From the public facing side, we are working to ensure from the Upstate New York Poison Center that we're educating the public. So we've put out a informational video for parents and for teens to let them know what these products are, what some of the risks are, and the CDC and other health departments are doing the same thing. They're making sure that the public is aware of what these risks are and doing their best to uh, make people understand that using these products is not necessarily safe. Is anyone saying that people should just stop vaping? Oh, certainly. So um, we are continuing to advocate that if uh, someone is vaping and they have never smoked before, they just started vaping, that's not a safe thing, right? So I think one of the, the misconceptions about these products is that because there is this idea that if you're smoking cigarettes, vaping might be a little bit of a healthier alternative, that that is a good step for someone who's smoking cigarettes to take on the road to quitting the product. That does not mean if you are a 16-year-old and you've never smoked anything in your life that it's then safe to start vaping, right? These things still have nicotine in them. They're still addictive. And as we are now finding out, there's a lot of other chemicals in there that are potentially harmful. And so the CDC has come out and said, hey, this is a dangerous time. We don't yet understand what's going on. Our advice is just across the board, don't use vape products right now because we need to get more answers before we feel okay uh, saying that people are able to use these. So there's also proposals um, to ban flavors or flavored e-cigarettes or the, the flavors that go into the vaping devices. So there have been proposals in a few states. New York State, as of uh, very recently, was the first state to take this up. Uh, so the uh, Health Commission did vote to ban flavored e-cigarettes in New York State. Uh, so they would allow the sale of nicotine or uh, tobacco uh, and menthol flavored devices, but all other flavored devices are now considered illegal in New York State. And uh, the industry has two weeks to comply. So as of October 4th, uh, there should be no more flavored e-cigarettes in New York State. Now, the vaping industry has indicated that a legal challenge may be in the works, so that is obviously something that could change the dates in flux, but um, New York State, as of very recently, was the first state to take legislative action on this. Now, that's aimed at uh, reducing the number of young people starting vaping. Not It's not aimed to the lung disease. It's Exactly. So uh, we know that there are a number of flavors out there like bubblegum and cotton candy and mango and raspberry. And certainly there are probably some adults that like the flavored products. But when you start selling products that have flavors that are clearly geared towards teens, uh, that's a problem. And we know that these uh, products are addictive. We know that the nicotine can impact brain development if individuals start using them in their teens and early 20s. And so the ban on flavored cigarettes is really not doing anything uh, to reduce the incidence of lung injury. We don't think the flavor's causing the lung injury, uh, but that's really 
geared towards let's see if we can get young people to stop vaping because at least in New York state, our most recent data suggests that about 27% of high school students indicate that they are vaping. And that is a huge number and should certainly be a public health concern. Can you talk about the difference between how these vaping devices work compared with how cigarettes work? Sure. So vaping devices are a little bit different than cigarettes. Cigarettes contain nicotine. Vaping devices contain nicotine. So that is a similarity. Uh, in that regard, uh, the risk is the same. Where they are different is that nicotine or in cigarettes is delivered to the lungs by what's called combustion, right? So you light the product there, it heats up, it burns and the nicotine is delivered via smoke. That includes a number of carcinogens, which is why we know that uh, smoking cigarettes is related to uh, causing long-term difficulties with breathing, lung cancer, et cetera. We know that risk is there. With vaping products, they take the nicotine and they put it into a solution, like a water and oil solution. And that solution is then rapidly heated and it produces a vapor, like you would boil water and you would get vapor coming off the top of that boiling water, it's the same concept. So you inhale the vapor uh, into the lungs and that's the vehicle that delivers the nicotine. Now where we have some misconceptions with that is that people say, okay, it's vapor. And the first vapor they think of is water vapor and water vapor is pretty darn harmless. And so they have this perception that the product is harmless. And we certainly wanna clarify that while vaping may be a safer alternative to smoking, although the research is still out on that, Vaping on its own is not a safe endeavor. The chemicals are still in the vapor. Oh, absolutely. So there are a number of chemicals in these products um, that in other areas of industry have been linked to lung disease. And so whether or not they are going to contribute to or cause lung disease when people use them as a vaping product, we just don't know. We don't have enough information yet. We haven't had e-cigarettes around long enough to know what are the long-term consequences of these. So when people say, hey, these are safe, well, it's not that we know that they're safe. It's just that we don't have enough information yet to know how dangerous they potentially could be. So, but the lungs as, as an organ and how they function, these chemicals come in, the, the lungs aren't set up to filter them in any way, right? No. So the chemicals themselves, um, including uh, chemicals like diacetyl, as well as microparticles. So there are kind of tiny microscopic particles that are in these uh, products. Uh, those, the chemicals themselves can get in and potentially cause lung damage. The particles can potentially get in the lungs and remain in the lungs for periods of time. And what that means for lung injury, we still don't know. Uh, so to argue that these are completely a safe product is uh, not an argument that we have enough evidence to back up. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Willie Eggleston from the Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now... Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. I love how poetry can present a complicated and involved story in just a few stanzas, leaving us with vital information we need, while giving us ample room to expand the story in our minds. Barry Peters, a writer and teacher from Durham, North Carolina, takes a sad, frustrating event but shows us its softer, sweeter side. Here is Viola. He dies and is born again three or four nights a week, an unexpected turn of events because he grew up Methodist, though by the time he was 90, he may have been an atheist. I should have asked him. To hear him reincarnated over the phone is kind of funny, or should be kind of funny, but it's actually kind of sad not just because it's my father we're talking about, who is alive, then dead, alive, dead, alive, dead. But Viola, his partner, now 92 herself, who can't remember that he's dead or isn't sure he's not alive. She calls me long distance, asks how he's doing. I reply, he's dead. 
He died last year. Viola chuckles and says, You told me that the other night, didn't you? I chuckle and say, Yes, I did. My wife has a plan. Send Viola a letter telling her when and where Dad died so that whenever she's confused, she can read the letter and not call me every other night. I begin to write, but then I picture Viola alone in her apartment, the dead letter taped to the bathroom mirror or the television screen or hanging by the fruit magnets on the refrigerator door, and I can't bear to imagine her leaning on her walker in the emptiness of the rooms, not thinking about my father, not thinking about him at all, and then her mind, or what's left of her mind, being reminded that he's dead whenever she brushes her hair, watches the six o'clock news, wants a cup of warm milk. So I don't send the letter, and I vow not to cry the next time she calls and kills my father again. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, an updated look at the opioid crisis. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.